Pray with me, please. Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still, that we might hear from you. Amen. It's hard to imagine what a shock this all must have been for them, for these wise men, that is, these learned intellectuals from the East. What a shock, what a scandal this must have all been for them. It's hard for us to even imagine. Let us leave off this morning with questions about the star these men saw, about what it was and how it got there, as significant and important and intriguing as such questions no doubt are. Yes, let us leave aside with such questions this morning. And instead, let us just focus this morning on the fact that these wise men were there. That these wise, esteemed men from the East had come so far to behold this child and that they were there. And then let us acknowledge that these men did, in coming, precisely what one would have expected them to do in such a situation, which is to say they went to the capital city. They went straight to the king's palace. For where else would you go to find a newborn king? And as a quick side note, I think too often we overlook this part of Matthew's birth narrative. I think that too often we overlook that the reason these wise men ever even interacted with King Herod in the first place is because the logical place for a royal baby to be born is there at the royal palace. So obviously the wise men went there first. Because it's what they expected. It's what any of us would expect. I mean, think about it. When Prince William and Kate Middleton were having their first baby, and when the whole world was on baby watch, you all remember that, and when the news finally broke that the baby had arrived, who among us imagined folks gathering in government-subsidized apartments far from London? in order to behold the promised child. Who among us had that picture in our minds of where the royal baby was to be born? Not one of us. No, we make assumptions about things, about, in this case, royalty and power and about where significance does and does not inhere. But all of that is a digression. So let us turn back to the story, noting as we do that this was the first King Herod had himself heard about this newborn king. And that it's only then, after Herod has consulted with his priests and his scribes, that Bethlehem of Judea is identified as a plausible place to look. And thus to Bethlehem, these wise men go. 
And eventually they come to the place where the star indicates they will find the child. And here, here in this humble setting, in this humble city, in this humble place among these humble people, here they do indeed find the child. And so I say again, it's hard for us 2,000 years later to even imagine what a shock and in fact what a scandal this must have all been for those wise men. For here indeed was the baby they traveled all this way to see. Here was the child they'd been led to believe was of singular significance. And yet this child before them now looked nothing like the singularly significant people they themselves had ever known. So scandal for them indeed. The story ends by saying that despite this humble reality before them, they nonetheless still gave him the gifts that they had purchased for royalty. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts wholly incongruent with the place they were now in and with the people in whose midst they now stood. Yes, the story ends by saying that they gave the family these gifts anyway and that then they left. And they left, Matthew concludes, quote, by another road. By another road. There is so much in this story. There's so much here to focus on and to unpack. There's so much to learn about the nature of God in this story and about the workings of the Holy Spirit in everyday affairs. But for today, I want us simply to focus on this particular line, this particular phrase that the wise men left by another road, which is to say by a different route than the one by which they'd come. You see, I want us to appreciate the transformative effect that this experience had on these men. Just as I want us to realize that despite the fact that the text tells us they were filled with great joy, that nonetheless, this transformation was not necessarily a desirable one for these men either. No, the epiphany that they experienced that day, the sudden realization that at the deepest level of reality, things are not in keeping with the way they assumed them and wanted them to be, this epiphany was jarring for them. So jarring, in fact, that T.S. Eliot, in a poem about the wise men, imagines them leaving this scene and saying, quote, This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like a death, our death. For you see, here in this experience... Their assumptions about power and royalty and significance and worth and how this world works and what really matters, all of that was entirely upended for them in this encounter. Died for them right there on the spot. 
For if this really was the newborn king, if this really was the child whom this mysterious spirit had drawn them all this way to behold and to honor, well then, if so, then the humility of this child and the humility of the circumstances that surrounded him, all of this then immediately called into question for them the comfort and the security and the powers and the systems that had all this time been propping them up that had all this time been propping their world up. It challenged them and convicted them and overwhelmed them. And so consequently, they left changed by this encounter. Unable to unsee what they'd just seen. Unable to unlearn what they'd just learned. Unable to forget what they now knew. Which is that the divine, that the very ground and source of all reality, draws close to and identifies itself with humility and suffering in this broken world, not necessarily with honor and sophistication. Scandal indeed. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard writes, and I quote, It is terrible when a generation which has been mollycoddled by a childish Christianity, fooled into thinking this is Christianity, has to receive the death blow once again of what it really means to be Christian. In reading Matthew's birth narrative this week, and in prayerfully considering the story of the wise men for this sermon, I found myself challenged by and coming back time and again to these words from Kierkegaard. For I think that they capture much of the harsh epiphany that these wise men underwent. But so much more than that, and I speak here on a personal level, I think they also capture what happens for us when we, 2,000 years later, undergo this same epiphany ourselves. And here's what I mean by that. We, and again, I speak from personal experience, we, like the wise men, tend to have an idea of what Christian faith ought to be for us, of what it ought to do for us. Just as we, like the wise men, tend to have an idea of what Jesus should be like, of what would be most desirable for us in a Jesus. And our ideas of these things tend toward a Christianity that provides us comfort and spiritual calm, all the while being underwritten by a Jesus who is powerful and mighty. And this is highly understandable on our part. For in the privileged and materially comfortable West in which we live, and in an era in which so much power and influence has for so long been wielded by the Christian church, it is almost impossible not to tend toward such ideas of Christianity and Jesus. But then we come up against these gospels themselves. 
And suddenly we are reminded that God became incarnate, not in the form of a baby in Herod's palace, and that God lived incarnate not in comfort and security, but rather in poverty and struggle, and that God lived incarnate among the poor and the marginalized and not among the elite and the power brokers. And finally, and most importantly, that God lived incarnate and suffered death on a cross rather than experience exaltation on a throne. We encounter all of this anew in the Gospels. And suddenly, when faced with these cold, hard facts, we realize to our dismay and certainly to our discomfort that we ourselves, and again, I speak personally, have been mollycoddled by a childish Christianity. And that we, therefore, have to receive anew the death blow of what it means to be Christian. In Eliot's poem, the wise men conclude by saying, And so we returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here. And this is what Matthew is getting at when he writes that the wise men left by another road. He means that they saw the child, that they beheld deepest reality, the reality here of the divine and that they were forever changed by it. He means that everything for them was suddenly turned upside down. Well, today is Epiphany Sunday on the Christian calendar. The day set aside each year to remember what happened that fateful day when the wise men encountered the incarnate God in so shocking a place and fashion. And my prayer is that on this day of Epiphany, everything for us might be turned upside down too. Yes, on this Epiphany Sunday, might we encounter the incarnate God anew, undergoing the same epiphany as those wise men, realizing like them that all we think we understand about this world, about how it works and about how things ought to be, that this has been forever upended by the life and by the death and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And might this challenge us to leave this day by another road ourselves. Which is to say, might this cause us to be changed yet again, transformed and renewed, undergoing the death of a too often mollycoddled faith and experiencing in its place a birth. Not just a birth, the birth, which is to say the birth of a faith that follows Jesus Christ, God incarnate, into the humility and the suffering of a world and of a humanity. That he, through the sharing and the divestiture of his power and his might, came to this earth to save and to redeem. To which all God's people said, Amen.